and welcome to the Piper Podcast. I'm Mary Nightingale. On How I Grew My Brand, we talked to successful founders about how they made it. The good bits, the not-so-good and the downright challenging. And, crucially, the key inflection points along the way to becoming a brand legend. Now, Piper's identified those as 71770, whether that's millions in turnover, staff headcount, or sites. 71770 are the points at which a business has to pivot and adapt to thrive fully. Today, I'm with Julian Hearn and James McMaster of the complete food brand Huel. Founded by Julian in 2015, this vegan human fuel sets itself at a pretty high bar. Healthy, affordable, convenient, nutritionally complete, with minimum impact on the environment and animals, and the aim of becoming a billion-pound business and household name. James joined Huel as CEO in 2017. Between them, they have reached 40 to 50% year-on-year growth. They're active in 100 countries and turned over £100 million last year, supported by a devoted and growing army of followers, or hooligans, more of whom later. So, welcome, Julian and James. Very, very nice to meet you. So, uh, Julian, starting with you, on the journey of 71770, I mean, it looks like you've already smashed the ceiling, doesn't it? I think we have, yeah. I think um, the, 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 the seven probably is probably one of the hardest things to get done I think from my perspective obviously scaling thereafter is always hard but the, the I think the early times are the hardest times but fun though I bet looking back is fun at the time it feels like it's overwhelming <laughs> and I, I've said this to somebody else the, the other day I was saying it, when you're in the middle of it it feels super super tough but when you look back yeah it, it is the most rewarding times for sure so t- take me right back then to those tough but rewarding times where did the idea come from how did you start here okay I'll go back just before to explain this but uh, I sold a business back in 2000 11. I took a bit of time out and then got itchy feet and realised that I couldn't just sit around for the rest of my life. I've got a, had a young son and I wanted him to be a good role model. So I decided to sit down and think, right, what do I want to do? It wasn't a, a money-driven idea that I wanted to do. I wanted to do something that's going to be rewarding to me and uh, be a passion project, I suppose, something that was going to be three days a week so I could spend time with the, with the family at home. And so I started a business called Body Hack, which was going to be in the health and fitness space. And the idea of that business was we were going to actually put people through different meal plans, different fitness programs, and make an evidence-based website. So rather than getting told what you should do, we will show you what works and what doesn't work. So it's going to be uh, a true reflection of what could be achieved if you followed these plans. I was a guinea pig for that. Went down from 20% body fat down to 11% body fat at the age of 40. That was the leanest I'd ever been. And literally what it was, the key difference was I was doing no more exercise. The key difference was I was weighing all of my food and cooking it from scratch myself. It was three meals a day and three snacks a day, so it wasn't like I was starving myself. But I can't do that. I'm a working person. I can't stop at 11 o'clock and cook a, an egg and some broccoli, and I can't stop at lunchtime and cook turkey and green beans and stuff. like. I can't do that. So at the time, my afternoon snack was a, um, a protein shake, and super convenient, super easy, easiest meal of the day to do, and made me think, why can't we put all the essential nutrients into a single product in the same format as a protein shake and get the, the super convenience of that, but you get all the nutrients you need. You can't live off protein. You need essential fats. You need different types of fats. You need 26 vitamins. You need fibre in your diet as well. And so I thought, I'm going to find somebody who can help me and tell me if that's possible. So I went onto Google and found um, James Collier, who was at the time... Uh, a consultant, and he'd got 25 years' experience working with the, the NHS as a clinical dietitian, and he'd worked with um, professional bodybuilders and uh, athletes, so he really knew the a- a- academic and the practical side of things, and he put a formula together for me in about two weeks, and that's still pretty much the formula we've got today. Mm. Well, I'm going to talk to you more about how it grew and how it developed, but l- let's go back even even further. Okay. Tell me about your life and how it prepared you for where you are now. Okay, so I was uh, brought up and raised in Chesham. At the age of five, moved to Aylesbury and just had a normal working-class background. Dad worked in a shop and mum was a part-time waitress. So in terms of having any experience of startups or entrepreneurship or even business, I had zero. Left school 16, worked in a shop, then worked as a labourer for two years, went back to college, uh, was going to do um, business studies, and I found marketing, and I just found I had a natural ability in that area. 
then went to uni, left there, went into the corporate world and worked for people like Waitrose, Starbucks, uh, Tesco's, uh, MFI. And um, the internet was pretty hot, so I sort of focused more and more digital marketing. I was good at that, but still didn't really show any entrepreneurial spirit. It was literally just the age of 36. I started, 37, I think it was, first started my first business. And it was, in that case, was just a needs must. I wanted to work from home. I lived out in Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire, and there was no jobs in my area. So I decided to make my own job. So I started my own business. That's why I started it. Mm. Well, you say you, you weren't necessarily a natural uh, entrepreneur but you had your own business when you were eight didn't you you were, <laughs> you, well, you were flogging something on your road when you were yeah, eight so is, it was, the spirit was there that, I reckon from is, the start. yeah that is correct yes I did um, <laughs> I um, uh, me and my brother we started a little stall up when we was eight years old and we used to sell the, the excess plants that my mum had in her greenhouse there you go you see entrepreneur <laughs> and uh, I suppose I was a bit entrepreneurial because she said can you sell these plants for me so we sold them once we'd sold them we went and took the rest of them and sold those as well They we shouldn't have sold those ones <laughs> <laughs> so you know, fast forward a few a few years then, and and back to the beginning of Huel, you did it on your own without a co-founder initially. Correct. You brought in James Collier to yeah. help you later on. But was it how difficult was it to do it on your own? Uh, I don't know because I've never done it with somebody else, right? But I can argue that I think it might be easier doing it by yourself in some ways. The only person you've got to argue with or, or debate with is yourself. And so there's there's only one direction. It's your direction. There's no disputes. There's no like, should we go left or should we go right? It's literally, we're going the way I want to go. <laughs> so I think in some ways it could be easier. The worst situation I've seen sometimes is where you get three co-founders, you split the shares three ways... And you end up with, you know, you sit, you're, nobody's got majority share from day one. You started off with a really bad cap table, effectively. And I think that can be really messy going forward, especially when I can't see how three people or even two people can pull their weight equally. And then that can cause disputes between you, because if you're not pulling your weight and I'm pulling my weight, I'm going I'm to resent you. And I might then go, well, I'm not going to work that hard. And so both of you might spiral downwards, but you do need to get the extra skills in. So James Collier was a skill that I didn't have. I didn't have enough knowledge to do to do the, uh, the nutrition side. So I freelanced him, him and didn't have to give him shares to start with. It's only over a period of time that I saw the value in, in, in having him and then ultimately gave him um, a, some shares in business. Okay. So this was 2015 you, you launched, yep. you set up. Yep. But then 2017, you brought in James McMaster. Correct. And we will hear from James in a moment. But when did you decide and why did you decide you needed a CEO? Because there you were going along very nicely from yep. the sound of it, going your own way, having to answer to nobody. Yep. But then everything <laughs> changes, right? Yeah. Well, running a business is obviously very hard. You have to be a jack of all trades because there's obviously different parts of a business. My background is marketing, but marketing is only one department. You have HR, you have operations, you have finance, you have legals. And most of those areas, A, I don't think I'm particularly good at, and B, uh, they don't particularly excite me. So the thing that I am good at, I wasn't doing. So spoke to um, Clive, who's uh, one of our non-execs, who I brought in really early. It was uh, influential in terms of a lot of decision-making. I said to him, what are we going to do? And he said, well, why don't you find somebody else to, to do that part of the role for you? You'd have to give up CEO. And I think for some founders, that's quite a uh, a big thing to ask. But for me, I was quite keen <laughs> to give it up as quickly as possible because it was, I wasn't enjoying it. Well, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, you know, we talk to a lot of founders on on this series of podcasts, and people do often regard their business as their baby. Yep. There is this kind of almost umbilical link between people, and they're they're just not willing to give away the baby. But you you felt able to do that in a way. I think that's sort of unusually kind of um, objective. Well, you're going to be the founder and you always will. But I think that a CEO role is quite hard. Well, it's a very hard thing to do. I don't think I, I could do it and I didn't do it very well. You did it to a certain point. but Correct. Then... When you literally are, yeah, you're, you're bodging your way through, right? <laughs> to do it to the standard we do today, what James did, I can't do that. Therefore, it's better to, I don't think we would be where we are today if I didn't make that hard decision to do that. But at the time, I didn't think it was that big a, big a decision. I just thought there's loads of stuff I don't like doing it. Let's get somebody who could do that. Mm. But how did you find the right person? How did you find James? Well, funnily enough, it took me one hour to find James. I got lucky, okay? I went onto LinkedIn and I selected uh, about 20 or 30 brands that I thought were 
good quality, up and coming, and mostly in the food business. I didn't want to go to the really big, big companies. I wanted somebody with sort of smaller business experience and put a couple of terms in like CEO, uh, manager, director, and I think I might have put operations director because I thought I wanted somebody who wasn't, say, had a marketing background because that could be too too much of a conflict. And, um, yeah, I got a shortlist pretty quick, gave it to one of the recruiters we'd working with, and they lined up some interviews. We saw some other people, but, yeah, James was very impressive in interview. So it took me an hour to find him. It didn't take me that hour to uh, offer, but it took about an hour to find him. And um, the interview process, you know, how, did you, how did you actually um, do I, them? So the interview process at Shules today are quite long, um, but at the time... It was. I'd done all the recruiting to that date, so we, we maybe were about, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 people at the time, and I'd done all the recruiting. So I think I've got quite good tasting people, but we also believe in doing tests because obviously my experience was being sometimes people are incredibly, incredibly good at interviewing, um, not so good at working, and sometimes the most one of my best employees, he was terrible interview, very, very nervous, not very good, but he's turned out to be one of the best employees. So I, I don't judge too much on how you present yourself in terms of interviews, so I'd like to see some work. So we typically give people a, a little mini case study or something to actually work on and come back and present that back to us so we can actually see their thinking rather than uh, just their speaking. Mm, and so you found James. Yeah. And here he is, James McMaster. How, how nice to meet you. Hello. Hello. So from your point of view, what attracted you to Huel? I was in a place where I'd done lots of food brands before, very challenger brands that had all gone from sort of baby to, to toddler and, and moving forward from there. And I was lucky in that my wife founded an e-com brand selling modern professional clothes. And I was really like wowed by that and wanted to do something similar. But in food, the very few brands are online. And then suddenly the stars aligned and got, got the phone call. I thought, wow, this is this is one of the few online brands and it's actually going somewhere. And the scale it had after probably like a year and a half of it being around when we, when we first spoke was, was insane. And I thought I'd done fast growth before with brands like Ella's Kitchen and Goo. And in those first two years... Huel was much bigger. Okay, but in terms of figures, where exactly was Huel when at that point? So I think our, our second financial year. Um, so you launched was, 2015, just to take us back, yeah? yeah? Yeah, and then we got to, it was about 8 million when I joined, and we had about yeah, 20 people, and now we're 200 people, and uh, last year we were 100 million pounds in revenue. And that was like 50% year on year growth, was it last year? We, uh, it was roughly now, yeah, yeah. In the early days, obviously, a lot, a lot faster. Wow, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, what was your first impression of uh, of Julian when you when you met him? Julian's very direct, so he sort of has these list of questions in his head. He sort of go goes through them, and, and the, the pace is quite fast on that. And we're, it's interesting; it kind of reflects us as a business. The pace is very fast, but mm-hmm. he he's very happy to ask the tough questions, and there's no sort of beating around the bush for it. It, it was probably like almost a bit too good to be true in terms of the growth level, and so it's kind of my radar was a bit sort of you know, dig, digging in and kicking the tyres a bit. And they weren't, I remember asking for some numbers on financials and stuff, and there wasn't that much there. So I guess you, you're taking a little bit of a, a leap of faith. I, I, I've done personality profiling before, and when you look at someone on different spectrums, I'm very much on the on the risk spectrum, so I'm happy to take risks. And therefore, for me, it's sort of like, okay, the management account's sort of not much there, but I, I can see it, I can believe in it, I, I got a good feeling for the brand. And then went to a board meeting and, and presented my thoughts and what we'd do. And then I remember Julian asking a question about, am I obsessive as a person? And I don't think I gave a very good answer. And the next time we met, I said, you know what, I wanted to come back to that, like, I am obsessive. And it's something we talked about a lot over the years is, Huel is very addictive and there's something about it and, and us as people where you, you just can't quite let go and there's always more to do and there's always more you're thinking about. And I think maybe that's part of the reason why we've, we've done well the last few years is that natural obsessive nature. Um, and I remember the last time going back in, just for, I don't know, last hour or something, the kind of unusual element was sort of Julian's son Cohen was there and, and he was probably, what was he then, five, six, something? And he was there on his Nintendo Switch. <laughs> and um, it's very entrepreneurial, that sort of thing. You know, you wouldn't go to a large corporate and, and have a, a kid in the room playing playing on the game. When uh, Julian asked you if, if you were obsessive, why do you think he wanted to know that? I think it was more of a... Especially in the early years, a lot of people have good ideas, but most the reality is most business fails. And you have to just be catching these plates that are falling the entire time. Mm. And I think that that passion you have and that energy 
passes on to others. And that's something people have said about me is I'm quite quite high energy. And therefore, if you don't have that obsession about it, you, you're probably going to fail. Yeah, you mm. need to have it. Had you ever started your own business? Did you? I've got something in me that likes the growth, the entrepreneurial nature, all those things. I've just never had the best idea and actually been very lucky with Goo and Ella's Kitchen and now Huel of three incredible success stories where I haven't had the idea but played a big part in how they've grown and um, maybe I'm better at um, growing businesses rather than being the person that comes up with them. What were the main opportunities you saw in the business when you first came to it? What did what potential did you see there? He was a, was already a love brand. People, the way they talk about it, and you'd see it on social. There's there's a attachment that people had. They wanted to share with their friends. And I think if you if you try and push a brand too much, then it becomes a bit fake. But what Huel had then and still has is this incredible word of mouth, where most people who buy it do so because someone told them it's really good and to go and buy it. And it's quite hard to create that and mimic that. We do things a bit differently to others, and I think people want to come and join us because of that reason. And and we ask our team um, every six months, how do they feel about the business? And there's always things we've got to work on fine, but people like working at Huel because we have a great product but a great culture as well. Mm. What were the biggest challenges when you joined? Well, we we launched in the US just as I was joining, and then we ran out of stock (laughs) after about a month. That was pretty hard because we were gambling on how much we thought would be. And so trying to keep up with growth, trying to bring on new manufacturers, hiring people, building new websites, um, just juggling everything really at the time. What was the most difficult thing, if there were any difficulties at all, in getting Julian to let go of? It's probably a lot easier for us in that he, as he said, he wanted to let go of all these things. Mm. I think, or at least he thought he did. He thought he, he did, yeah. Well, you, th- you know, it might not have worked out like that. I'm quite lucky having worked with two founders previously that I respect that there's something natural and I kind of say it's something in his veins that 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 you can't you can't replicate and therefore sometimes even though they've got less experience on a certain thing they might be right and there's that feel factor the gut the gut feel yeah and that's that's really powerful and businesses without founders don't don't have that same gut feel that gives you that kind of constant guidance what would your advice be to CEOs who might be thinking of taking the same direction as you and going in. How, how would you advise them to, to approach that? I think you've got to be quite flexible because you've got your own belief and I think I've got to be strong and confident in what I think and my 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 own veins as well. But at the same time, being respectful that someone else has sort of done it for longer and they've kind of done the, done the early yards and, and how do you find that combination? And sometimes you've got to sort of have it out about, well, I think this and you think this and how do we how do we move that forward? And And for us it's quite good that we rarely disagree on things so quite different personalities but very very similar in terms of view on product and view on brand and view on growth and all those things and that that's maybe a bit of luck really maybe it's a bit more kind of we're more thoughtful beginning on sort of rule not rule driven but sort of thinking of parameters and 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 now there's there's none of that because it sort of just happens naturally that's because you've worked together for a long time so how quickly can you get into that kind of that groove we don't need to um worry about things Mm. Julian, back to you. What what would you say were the, the the biggest challenges? You know, you 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 fell in love with James after an hour. You thought that was going to be great, and it can't have all been smooth right from the start, despite your best intentions. So, what would you say were the biggest challenges of of, of James joining and 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 taking up that role? James is quite calm. I'm quite sort of <laughs> opposite of calm. I'm quite passionate and quite get. I can go zero to hundred miles an hour quite quick. What you mean? You get angry about stuff. <laughs> angry is quite the right word, but I get I get emotional. It can be useful to have those two two types of uh, personalities. I think if we were both super calm, maybe we wouldn't get everything done that needs to get done at the pace it needs to get done. If we were both heated, we'd probably end up having too many arguments. So I think the fact that we'd sort of split that way works quite well. One thing we did that was useful in the early days is that we wrote out all the different departments within the business and we agreed that this this department is your responsibility and but you will consult me on big decisions. So really it ended up being basically marketing was mine um, and everything else was James's. One of the beauties of being uh, a marketing person is that really anything that affects the customer, I feel it's my right to talk about and actually be involved in. So James is very good at consulting on big, big decisions, but then everything else he can he can crack on with. You know, you do have growing pains and sometimes people are good uh, for a certain period of time within yeah, the business. Yeah. But luckily James has been good from the early days when it was early. 
uh, and we're now a much bigger business, which sometimes requires a different type of person. But James has been able to grow into that role. So I got lucky. Yeah. How would you describe the culture of Huel then overall? It's a balance between hard work and fun, I think. We, we sort of codified it, our culture quite early. And what I tried to do is try and get a balance between uh, my experience of two different uh, big retailers I used to work at. One was incredibly aggressive in terms of its numbers. What the consequence of that was, was the targets were so high, you very rarely achieved them and it caused a lot of conflict internally. It, it wasn't a very good place to work and so I lasted there for two years and I think a lot of people didn't last as long as that so you burn people out too quick. But they did achieve great things and it was the, it was the market leader at the time. So there was something to learn from that. I also went to a, a similar type of retail in the same industry and, uh, you know, it was such a nice place to work. Everybody loved working there. Everybody, that's why they stayed for so long. You know, if you sneeze, three people will come over and say, you okay, do you want a tissue? Do you want to go home? Stuff like that. It's a very, very, uh, <laughs> um, you know, friendly place to work and really looked after their staff. Lots of perks. And um, so what I've tried to do is merge those two together and sort of meet in the middle. The problem with that, that company that was so nice to work for is they didn't have that drive. I think we've got that balance right. We don't push people too too hard so we burn people out. We do push them enough to achieve very good numbers. So our growth is extremely good. Um, at the same time, we've got a great big gym. We have yoga teachers, have PTs come in. Um, you know, we've, we've, everybody's got share options in the business. So everybody feels like uh, um, we're all in the same boat together. It's not, you know, them and us. So James and I sit open plan. That's why we sort of speak quite a lot because we sort of see each other all the time. So we literally walk past. The offices are very nicely uh, designed. Our churn rate's incredibly small. In six years, I think there's been three people that have left the business that we wanted to keep. I think one of the best things we did is we, we wrote down about 60 pages, a culture book. And the aim of that is if you join a company, you end up doing what the person next to you tells you. And then suddenly it becomes less tight. Whereas if you write it down... It forces you to go through it and everyone goes through an induction and goes through page by page in this culture book. And mm. I still induct everybody. So everybody who comes into the business, I spend time with everybody who comes in to sort of tell them from the horse's mouth what I expect and what I don't expect. Disagree ever on, on hires? Well, interesting, actually. Let, let's ask more about, we, we have something like a cultural, called a cultural veto, where two people are selected to meet meet um, the candidate for about 15 minutes. And they're completely different completely teams. Different, yeah. So they're like okay. old school hooligans that really know the culture really well. And they can look at a person and go, that isn't the culture fit. And they can veto that person, even though if James and I say yes, they can veto. Which doesn't happen that often, but it does. Ha- it has, has happened. And we go, fine, no problem. They're not, they're not joining. OK. You mentioned, and I was going to bring this up, hooligans. Yep. Who are these hooligans? So in the very early days, actually the name came from uh, uh, our customers. I think it's partly because we, we, we care quite a lot with the box. So I used to pack all the boxes myself. We put a uh, free T-shirt and then I used to, I used to uh, uh, put a handwritten note in each one and stuff like that. I really sort of, there's a, there's a concept of a thousand true fans. That's what I really try to focus on. There's first a thousand customers. You really try hard. And I think if you try hard, they, they, they respond back. So um, we put a little bit more effort into social media. And then I think it was a wife of a customer said, look at these two hooligans. And so now our internal staff are hooligans and our customers are hooligans. We're all in the same sort of community. We have a big internal customer service team that are talking a certain way. We're a little bit sassy on social media. And I think that all of that just builds a, a community of people. You know, you go into Reddit, there's a there's a whole um, thread on Reddit. And I just, looked at your Twitter stuff. There's yeah. a there's a lot of chat. There's, yeah. You know, there's... yeah, it's really engaging. So there's something sort of magical in what we've sort of created. And most of it has come from, you know, we, we, we're nice to them, they're, they're nice back to us. Mm. And I just think it's something there. I think it's partly because we're mission-based, partly because of our sort of sassiness, partly because of our um, uh, aesthetic, that people just really sort of engage in the brand. And um, it's just been, yeah, it's been heartwarming. Mm. Um, Piper talk about building brand legends. Um, and, and at the heart of this, it's, it's the importance of brands to stay, you know, resolutely true to their purpose what is Huel's purpose because you do have a very defined purpose don't you we do I mean we're nutrition complete food but I mean the key key part is minimal impact on animals and the environment you know the world is in you know not an ideal place in terms of global warming and I love animals and I remember seeing some stuff some quite horrific stuff on um, YouTube about how animals are treated in, in terms of the farming industry so I thought trying to make people vegan is really quite hard but there's animals being harmed, you know, billions of animals a year. So what can we do about that? And uh, I felt that if we can make a product, uh, which is, you know, one of the problems with, say, vegan food, sometimes it's low in protein. So we make a high protein product. 
sometimes you know getting all the ingredients together is uh, inconvenient so we make it convenient so if we can make convenient affordable but complete food with minimal impact on the animals and environment it's got to be the right thing to do and then on top of that there's other things that I, you know when i started start first thinking about you're thinking okay so you know the amount of plastic waste you might have when you go to a supermarket even the flipping cucumbers wrapped in plastic and the cucumber's super inefficient. It's like 97% water. You ship it around, it gets bruised, you throw them away, so 30% of food is thrown away. So if we make it dried, so it's obviously dried uh, food that you add the water to, you've all got water in your house, you don't need to ship water around. So um, then that would increase the shelf life. Because it's a powder, you can't bruise it, it can't really get damaged. So this is a very good thing, a very beneficial thing to the world. People are getting complete nutrition at a very affordable price, and animals are not being hurt, and the environment's going to be better. People join us because of that mission. You know, again, if you're starting a company, I would advise you to really think about why you're doing it. If you're starting, like James said earlier, if you're just starting to make money, I would argue that's not a good that's not a good place to start. You're going to struggle in lots of different ways if that's your main focus because you won't have the, the sort of passion to push through the hard times. Mm, but you were in quite a fortunate position in that you'd already made some money, Correct. you know, last yep. last yep. time around. You're kind of serial entrepreneur in a way, aren't you? But, you know, so a lot of people don't really necessarily have that option when they start out. The money is incredibly important because it's what keeps them going. Well, the interesting thing is that obviously she would have made much more money than my first business where my first business was focused around making money. You know, the first box that I put together I put I decided to go the extra mile so I put um, I made an A4 card and I got it designed and found someone on Behance or something like that then I hand signed them so that is not making money that's actually costing me money and costing Mm. me time I put a free t-shirt in there to make people then hopefully uh, feel good about receiving something and therefore they hopefully will spread the word more that cost me money but then that's probably been one of our best uh, acquisition tools ever so if you try too hard to make money you might not make much because people don't they don't they don't want to feel like they're being sold to too hard or they don't feel like they're being conned into buying something if you just do things for the right reason obviously it has to give value back somehow but if you do that then you might end up with a much bigger business Huel is a much much bigger business than my first business and I, it was started with the intention of never trying to make money from it <laughs> You're listening to the Piper Podcast, and today I'm talking to Julian Hearn and James McMaster of Huel. Where did the name Huel come from? <laughs> why, why, why Huel? How did how did how did that come about? Okay, so names are, I think, very very important. A unique name's good, but I think it's always nice to have a story or a meaning behind it. So I wrote down sort of meanings of what I was trying to do, and human fuel was sort of what I was trying to say. And eventually, I saw saw Huel, and I thought. That's short, sweet, ownable, but has got meaning behind it. The other key component, I think, of a name is the visual way it looks. And so you try it in different fonts. And the designer actually did a few different versions of different styles of logos, like handwritten script fonts and sort of blocky fonts and all different other stuff. And then when I saw Huel written pretty much as it is today, it just looked right. So for me, it was short, sweet, had a meaning and, and just looked right when it was turned into a logo. Food is imbued with so much significance. It's yep. emotional and, you know, it's comforting and yep. people overeat and people undereat and all that. Where does it sit in that? Because human fuel is all very well. Yep. It's a great idea. But food is not logical or isn't for a lot of people. So, yeah, to explain okay. how it works. Okay. So I, I separate them out into two things. I think there's entertainment food and there's functional food. So entertainment food will be your Saturday night takeaway, it'll be your Sunday roast, it will be your meal out with friends. That's all entertainment and calories and nutrition is semi-relevant. It's more of the, the look, the art, the taste. But the primary purpose of food is clearly nutrition, right? If you don't eat the right nutrition, your body will suffer. You might even die if you don't do that. And you can have all sorts of medical problems and lots of medical problems are caused by people not eating the right nutrition. And so... You've got to have a balance between the two. So that's where Huel fits in. People say you're, you're missing out on the joy of eating food and the social occasion. When you get up in the morning, you rush into work, there isn't much of a social occasion there. There's not much joy in grabbing something and going in the morning. Or at lunchtime when you're at work and you're busy and you've got stuff to do. Or you're a taxi driver or you're a lorry driver. Or actually, I went into the hospital yesterday and the, uh, the uh, uh, doctor had a Huel shaker on, on their table. When people are really busy, they need to eat. They're not going to sit down and have a roast dinner in the middle of a, you know, a doctor's office, right? So there's, there's times and places for different things. I think if you think about them as entertainment food and functional food, they both have their place and they both have their time. Mm, so, so in 
a, a typical hooligan, if there's such thing. Who is the typical hooligan? Who, who's a typical huel user, James? OK, so it varies quite a lot, a lot actually. So take, take us as examples. Monday to Friday, breakfast, lunch and snacks, all we have in the office is huel. And that's not forced on people in, in the office. It's just generally what we do and others do. And that's the inconvenient meal. You want you, you want to prioritise your health. And the evening, it's sort of a bit more relaxed. Um, we do get people who are sort of tie, short on on time, and they're and they're doing it for that for that reason. And ultimately, most people, it's healthy fast food. There are people who are photographers. Um, there are people who work at schools and teachers and things. People trying to focus on their their health goals in a particular amount of time people who've got a plant-based diet and as Julian said it's quite hard to get all your nutrition from a plant-based diet and we make it very simple for you and we get you know we get people uh, who are at university who see it as pound fifty per meal and they're, they're doing it from a cost point of view so it's really really broad actually and ultimately when, when you get your head around the fact that it's it's your inconvenient meal it could be one meal a week it could be 30 meals a week it sort of depends on your your scale it's much broader than, than people might think when they first mm. look at it and, and what about the naysayers what about detractors who say because uh, can't, everyone can't yeah. be positive about it it's quite it. interesting because most people who are the, the naysayers in fact I don't know like 99.9% they've never tried it and I think what people do, it's like a it's like a psychology thing in society where you try and knock something that's considered new or novel or, or different. Mm. And it's quite funny because the way, um, say, take social, the way it works is if we respond back and we're quite witty and a bit, bit known for our kind of confident tone of voice on, on social, what that does is it creates a conversation. Mm. And that actually means you get the more engagement you get in a post, the more uh, more people who see it. So these people sort of like like trying to kind of shoot us down a bit from from afar what do they say what kind of comments do they make i think people will people people are scared of something that they don't understand and they'll say oh i like real food and you know our product our product's made of pea and rice and oats and and really healthy grains and actually what most people have what they might call real food might be it's just the same but probably worse ingredients just in a different format you know talk about a a burger that and, and bread and bread comes from wheat that's added to water and yeast and heated up in a different way. I think what changed for us a little bit actually is about two years ago we launched another range which is a hot and savoury range and I've got friends who you know they, they couldn't get their head past the fact that Huel is a drink and to consume that for their lunch. So it started then as a drink? Powder, powder, yeah. powder, powder, powder. that you then mix okay. to create a drink. That kept us going for, for a few years in terms of the product. And then we launched a ready-to-drink version of that, and then we launched a bar. And I think the, the hot and savoury was a game-changer because people who just couldn't get their head past that wanted something warm, wanted something they could chew, wanting something to use a spoon. And then that's what we have in, with our hot and savoury. It's an instant meal. So that comes in a pouch and you add water? And yeah, you come to pouch, you, you scoop out and it's kind of dried rice and peas and sweet corn and things and you, and you add water and, and then you actually, it's more sort of traditional traditional food. And I think we probably get fewer naysayers now, now our, our range has got bigger. Yeah. You you um, talked about launching the hot and savoury range. How do you decide what you're going to move into next? Do you do customer research? Are you constantly looking yeah. and working out where you're going to go? Our best uh, decisions in terms of MPD has been customer-led. Our Black Edition powder, they'd been a long time they'd been asking for more protein, less carbs, um, and a natural sweetener. So that's kind of more bodybuilder food, is it, uh, broadly? Not necessarily bodybuilder. It's just lots of people sometimes think uh, their body doesn't respond very well to carbs. They might just feel very bloated all the time and heavy. And um, we launched that product and that quickly became our best-selling product for new customers coming into the brand. Hot and Savory, again, was a, a customer-driven project. And again, that's been a very successful product for us. So most of our innovation comes from us looking, sometimes at the market, but mostly customers. Traditionally, brands would do a focus group with a with a, a mirror, and you'd sit there and you listen to five customers talk for an hour and you spend all this money. Every day, we get hundreds, if not thousands, of comments about Huel. And we piece on it social on media. social, mm. on our forum, uh, people calling us up, emailing, and it's, we've almost got too much information. So a lot of what we do is led by this interaction. And Julian said earlier about a hooligan as someone who works at Huel, but also a customer. And it means it's this sort of lovely harmony of conversation. And, and we're very transparent as a brand. And people, you know, you can look online and see the ideas people have. And we've got, you know, 50 of them we're looking at now. And the hard point is about choosing which one to do. 
how much of your community are people who are doing it for weight loss and uh, and that sort of aim? Um, probably not massively different from general public. I think most people are probably on a diet at one stage or another, aren't they? Um, so when we've ever done surveys, the, the, the two number one reasons that head and shoulders above everything else is they want 100% nutrition and they want convenience. Let, let's talk a bit more about the numbers. You know, Piper believes that there are these key inflection points in a business where things need to change, it's 7, 17, 70. Um, where are you now and where would you have been, do you think, Julian, if you hadn't taken James in the CEO role? How much difference do you think... He's made. I think that we'd probably be in a mess. I think that this is part of the problem that I was um, having is that uh, structure-wise, my instinct is a, a bit of a bodger. I think I can see the road ahead and I'm quite good at um, focusing on what needs to be done, but then I will neglect other areas, whereas James is much better at spreading himself across all the areas and giving everything, because you are spinning a lot of plates when you're doing James's role. So... Um, I probably would have dropped a few plates, put it that way. <laughs> James? When you talk about the different inflection points, I think in the early days it's pretty hard to avoid being what we'd call disorganised chaos. And I think chaos is a good thing. And where we are now, it's organised chaos. So we've got loads of plans and we've got great inductions and, and we, we're constantly we're doing sprints every three months for the whole business. And it's sort of, if you become too organised and you don't want any chaos, you become the oil tanker. And we say that's the enemy, don't become the oil tanker. If you're the oil tanker, you're, you're probably the kind of corporate efficiency bit where you become like Blockbuster or Kodak, where you go, no, 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 this is what we do, we're great at this, and you don't spot change. Whereas I think what we're really good at is being nimble. And I think the the challenge when you go through those different inflection points, 7, 17 and 70, is how do you remain nimble, but also know that everyone new who joins is expecting a greater level of organisation. And and that's quite hard. And I think particularly for us where we went through those stages in about two years. And how do you how do you do that? We are now now we're you know hundred million plus. We're at another stage, and I think we, we I think the number of people you have is probably the, the biggest change I found. So now we're at two hundred people. You no longer easily know the name of every person and everything about them and what they did on last last Friday night and things. And I find that quite hard. And kind of kind of how do I evolve to be the leader of the business that can handle hundreds of people more than that? And we, we, we did some research about tribes. So tribes, ancient tribes, often split up around 150 to 200 people because of that same thing. But obviously in the company, you just can't do that. So what's your way around it? So we're trialing things now like um, we've got uh, we use Slack as a way of communicating. And there's something we're trying last week called Donut, which is a, an, an app you link onto it and it picks eight people at random and you have a conversation and you create a video call just to kind of at least you know those eight people better and you just keep moving around that way. So I think that's the biggest challenge going forward is how do you keep the people together and aligned and that that's something we've done really well. So later today we've got our all hooligan session which is an all hands meeting and people really like it because it it, it it makes you tighter again and people come and they, they share what's going on and we do a ask me anything question sort of thing so that transparency is something we need to keep going and um, but be aware we've gone past that next stage and it's all about the good bits but knowing knowing how not to become the oil tanker mm. who in in um, in your view james has been the key hires that you've made since you joined Ooh. um all roles give roles. A, head of know. people's been a yeah. good role in terms of culture right so i don't think i've ever had a head of people anywhere i've ever worked before it's usually head of hr and so uh, she does do HR, but I think it's the people element which is more important than the sort of legal HR part. Just making sure that that scales with the business is really mm. important. So I think if you go back to our early days of the team we had when we was in LHB, when we scaled up to about 40 people there, that team was very, very solid and very together and in one big room. But as you scale that out, then it's it takes more work to make sure that you keep it. Mm. Yeah, so the, the combination of... The original gang plus the new gang, that can often go wrong. I think we've managed to keep almost everyone from the original gang and that's kept the culture stronger and also means the knowledge we've got in the business is incredible.
You are uh, in 100 countries, aren't yep. you? Um, we sold to 100 countries. OK, <laughs> explain where you stand internationally. Then. OK, so proactively, we're probably in, what, 10 countries? And then we sell to other ones if they come to us, but we don't advertise there, we don't do much, really. So really, we're in 10 countries where we're proactive. Of those, the, 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 the top two are US and UK. We've got four satellite offices, and those offices are near enough identical. If you walk into them, you should feel like you're in the same office. So the, the decor, the the styling, the, the elements in there are very, very similar. So and where have, are those four? So we have one in uh, central London. Uh, our main office is in Tring in Hertfordshire, where the bulk of our staff are. And then we have a t- uh, an office up in Birmingham, and which is where our coders are. And then we've got a team in, uh, in Dumbo in uh, New York. Okay, okay. And in terms of the product... Uh, is it the same product that you send out worldwide or do you tweak it for different markets? We have to tweak it because there are legal requirements. So we run from the EU and the EU set out, you know, using probably thousands of doctors, thousands of nutritionists. They agree what, what nutrition should you have as an individual in your diet on a daily basis and we run from that. The American one is very, very similar but slightly different in a couple of ways. So it has to be tweaked to agree to that market. And they're pretty similar across the world but there is a, a, a slightly different one again in Japan. Mm. And how have you dealt with Brexit and COVID? Let's deal with Brexit first of all. We were better than most in terms of having the the pain point, mainly because we already had a trading entity. We had uh, warehouses in different countries. So given our scale now, we've actually got seven warehouses around the world and we've got different manufacturing in in different parts of the world. So that's helped us out a lot. Um, COVID is probably more more tricky and and that's been the impact on everything logistics just takes longer and is less reliable. But again, we're quite protected in that food isn't something that people could just sort of decide to have or not have. It's fairly um, recession-proof and and resilient. shelf life for us has made a big difference, right? If you had to sell sandwiches, it'd be really hard because the shelf life is seven days. But for us, if something's stuck at a port for a month, it's not the end of the world because um, shipping times have changed from, say, four weeks to get to America. It's changed from four weeks to 12 weeks, up to 16 weeks at some stage. Remember the Suez crisis as well we had. In terms of COVID, the other thing is some people think that we've had a bump from COVID in terms of people wanting to eat healthier food. I think we suffered from COVID. I think that Do our you? numbers I think our numbers are very, very good and been very strong. But that's because we've worked harder. We were below target in the first what was it twenty nineteen uh, summer 20 yeah and so we've had to work hard just to keep the orders where we are so i think actually we'd be much further ahead than where we are today if covid hadn't happened how do you test international markets for example when you went into the us how did you go about investigating okay that? so uh, early days is different to today the testing was very minimal it's basically you you sell it the beauty of d2c especially in say europe we can just ship it anywhere in the world instantly as direct consumer, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. So the beauty of that is you don't have to set up a, you know, you don't have to go and speak to retailers, you don't have to build your own gyms, you don't have to do anything, whatever your business is. You literally could turn some ads on with Facebook, you could do a little PR campaign and uh, off you go. What we did in the early days, the first country we, we proactively advertised in was, was Germany. The reason we did that is we looked at where our orders were coming from. It was our number one country outside of the UK. It's as simple as that. As we've scaled, we've become a little bit more sophisticated and we look at lots of different factors. Uh, we look at um, you know, e-commerce penetration. We look at uh, the GDP of the country. We look at the disposable income. We look at what sort of products they're buying. And um, we also look at sometimes what our competitors are doing. I don't think there is a formula that works. So I think you're better off, if the costs are low, is to just try a market. Give it, you know, try it as best as you can. Don't just like half-heart it, you know, but go in seriously. But... Um, as long as you don't have to spend too much money. But to put it in perspective, I think when we first launched in America, it was one of my most junior members of the team did the research, sorted out a fulfillment house. We sent a few pallets over, fr- sort of almost threw up a website and turned it on. I think the whole the whole um, exercise cost us about five or £10,000 really? to and, test America. And, and where are you in terms of turnover in America now, would you say? It's our, it's our second biggest market, so it's grown hugely. I was just thinking, in the, in the early days of a brand the expectations from a customer are lower, so they're more forgiving. Now, we're at a scale where if we go into a new market, people want everything to be perfect. It, it has made it... Yeah, that's, that is, it's a tricky one. It, it depends on how big, how well you are known because obviously the early adopters are willing to try a product which is inferior to what the mass mass market would accept. You can test markets quite cheaply using D2C for sure. Mm. And would you go into Asia, for example? Like, would Japan, Japan be? Okay. Yeah, we're in Japan now. Um, it's quite large, 120 million people. 
it's quite large in terms of population, but it's not large in physical size. It's not like Australia. So um, it's quite, you know, you know, Tokyo is incredibly dense populated, not a lot of space. They, they've got some of the work, longest working hours in the world, I believe, and they've got some of the smallest accommodation. So uh, Hume fits into their lifestyle quite well. Uh, they like uh, very neat, tidy design aesthetic, which again fits in with us really well. So I have high hopes of Japan. And then if that works, then there's obviously lots of other Asian markets that we would consider as well. Mm. Do you work with influencers? Because you've got the hooligans out there, but do you have official influencers? Interestingly, we haven't really. We very, very recently just started. We never really had a, um, a proactive influencer team. Steve Bartlett is now on our board. His background was running a social media agency and working with influencers a lot. So he's amazed that we've got to where we are today without using influence because he said they do work. So I think it's partly his influence has made us look again at it and go, okay, this clearly does work for some brands. Some brands have just nearly do all influencer work. So we've looked at it and we said, right, okay, we're going to go for this. So we've hired four people now. They're the influencer team and they're going to try and make it work over the coming months. In terms of who are you influenced by, actually, we do really well with people having Huel in their office and telling their friends about it. And they're almost sort of daily micro influencers. And then we talked about the T-shirts. People walk around sort of subliminal messages to others to say, wow, Huel is something to be proud of and people want to be associated with something that's healthy, fast food that's good for the world. So arguably that's, that's our, that has been our version of influencers to date. Clearly, sustainability is really important at Huel, isn't it? Yeah, every decision we've ever made pretty much has been with that lens. Is going, is this going to, is this good or bad? So, you know, we do sell plastic bottles, right? We're quite data-led. So actually when we looked at that, we did really detailed carbon footprint. And what you find out is, say, our, our ready drink bottle, the um, packaging element is only 3% of the carbon footprint. And what we learned is the majority is ingredients. So most of our energy is spent on how do we change our ingredients. So when we launched a protein powder, we put in new ingredients like fiber and hemp that had a lower carbon footprint than say rice so i think the more we're quite open on our site you can see all this bits of information and that that's what people like they like understanding because everything sustainability is actually really really complicated and um, what about funding how has that worked throughout the the, the life over the last you know whatever it is six years yep. since you well, uh, as, launched as you said i did make money from pre- previous business so i put an initial 200 220,000 pounds into Huel to start with which is tiny versus most people correct i didn't spend it didn't spend it all but you that's didn't. no i put that money in because actually i'd um, burnt some money in that previous business body hack that i mentioned earlier i'd, I'd lost money on that one about 80,000 pounds i think it was so I invested, I tried to do it as best as I can, but on, on the sort of cheap. I thought that the design is really important. I thought, um, so I got, I paid, I think it's £10,000 for the domain name eventually. I paid £6,000 for the um, the design of the, the, the visual identity. And, uh, which, and is, which is something people can spend hundreds of thousands oh on. Oh my God, yeah, you could spend a ton of cash on that. So it's relatively cheap, but it's not yeah. like spending £5 and getting one of five. It was a, a bit more money than some people might have spent, but I think it was a wise investment. I hate logos when they change. You want to get it right first time if you can. So I invested in what I thought was in really important things. And then the initial order was, I think, £5,000. And then there was a few bits of freelance work here and there, like James Collier, for example, and stuff like that. So I didn't spend a ton of cash, but then as soon as you get going, then you need to pay for stock and you need to reorder, reorder, reorder. So we never burnt that. We never went through that money and I never lost it. And I got that money back. And then because we were making money the first couple of years of here, we were quite profitable. It was like 20% EBITDA or something crazy like that. And actually that's, that's quite good. So we, then we could put the money back into the business and uh, then we got rolling. And I think if you can do that, if you can make profit straight away, or really aim to keep yourself very lean and mean. So we were, you know, probably looking back a bit, you know, James probably goes, you probably were too lean at the time, which we probably were. But that allows you to to grow bigger. The bigger you are before you take any funding, the least you're going to get diluted. So the more of the company you're going to have. So we decided to raise because... And what, what, at what point was this? <coughs> well, this was, I don't know, three years in? This is three years in. Actually, do you know what? It was, it was America that drove a lot of it. So the big, the big, by doing America, we had a whole different supply chain, whole set of stock, and mm. it, the supply chain was longer, et cetera. And suddenly we were coming into Christmas and get, we, we kind of got through Christmas, didn't we? Sort of bodging, would be your word, and we, we kind of had stock really tight, but it wasn't very fun. We actually probably slowed down our growth because we couldn't afford to put money into stock. Mm. We pushed out some... The easiest way to do it sometimes is if you if you speak to your suppliers and say, can I pay you a little bit longer? If you push out your um, payment terms and just say, look, just get me through this this gap, this, this um, problem, 
then we'll go back to the original payment terms. Could you just stretch it for a little bit? And that gets you through the... Well, like take 60 days or something. Correct. Because obviously the worst time to raise money is when you need money. That's the worst time to raise money because they've got you over a barrel, right? So don't raise money when you need it. Try and get through the hard time. Then you get to a little bit of... Because we know that Christmas times we have to order the stock pre for our jam and then we're going to grow from thereafter. So... Th- so we sort of decided next summer we'd raise next summer, get through the gap and we'd raise next summer. So we, we went and started speaking because we had loads of people knocking on our door. I post, started posting on LinkedIn about how our growth was going. And of course, people see that. They come to you. I think people come to you as far more be- beneficial rather than you sending an email out to people say, can I come and speak to you about raising money? That's probably the worst way. So people came to us, which is great. So how planned. many? How many did you have coming? Can you remember? Uh, I think we had about thirty different companies, from you know very small, not not really legit, up to some really big ones. Yeah. So that summer, we sort of went back through the list of the people of contacts over the previous year, went through and sort of filtered it through, and probably met about five or six, seven maybe, and quickly whittled that down to three, three that were really hot. You will get added value from all of them because they're obviously got their money and they will want to help you. So we went out to, out for dinner with all three of the, the different firms to try to get to know, know them better and outside of the office. And I think that was incredibly valuable. And how much were we talking about at this moment? £20 million. Pounds. OK. So we raised £20 million 2018, October. And, and what difference has that made? What difference, you know, was it a game changer? Well, there's money and then there's the, the value bit you say there. Correct. So the, the money bit was, rather than spending a lot of time on do we have X days of stock holding or another few days? It's just painful finance stuff. We kind of got to ignore all that. And then secondly, I think what they're good, and not just them actually, but just the wider board, like Julian brought in non-execs really early in the business, which would be a massive thing yeah, that we'd I, recommend. I would advise any, any startup, if you want to be serious, start a board really early. Get some, get some, uh, some wise brains outside of your skill set on that board to give you counsel. We do eight eight board meetings a year, and um, the Highland team uh, plus the wider team, actually not just the people in the board meeting, they they got lots of support for us, and a lot of it's about sort of we're, we talk about sort of we're about to turn left, should we turn left or should we turn right? And being that sounding board, it's very easy in the business to get sort of you can't see the wood for the trees type moment, and you know they've, they've done these things before, and it's very helpful to us. How big were you when you raised twenty million? Uh, we were about. 40 million. 40 million run rate, I think. And and you said with that initial 200 grand, you didn't spend it. Did you spend the 20 million? Did you stash it away <laughs> for a rainy day? It depends on how you define spend. It's invested in stock. So has it gone to zero? No, don't think so. So if we sold all our stock through, we get that money back. So you, we haven't burnt it. It's in stock or in the business somehow. It's a very interesting good news story, isn't it? You seem to be in an amazing place. Julian, you said when you set out, it wasn't about making money, but you have made money. How does it feel? What does money mean to you? I mean, and just to be clear, I haven't got that money. It's paper money at the moment. So um, I could, we probably could have sold up. We've had people come to us. We probably could have sold up numerous times Mm. and walked away with a very big chunk of cash. But then what are you going to do then? Right? You've still got to do something. I don't know. I think that, yeah, of course, I live a slightly different lifestyle than I had in the past, but I still live half a mile from where I was brought up. I've still got the same group of friends. I still go to the same sort of uh, pubs and restaurants pretty much. You know, so my lifestyle hasn't changed massively. And uh, the the, the numbers that are going to be coming down the pipe at some point will be immense compared to what I was brought up with. But I don't know. I'm not quite there yet, so I don't know. Maybe I'll come back in a couple of years and tell you. How would you describe... Your role now? I'm CMO, so I'm still heavily involved. I go in four days a week, four and a half days a week. I'm still working with days off, so let's call it five days a week, really. I love it, yeah. And you're still texting James even when you're on holiday? Correct. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, look, it's lovely to meet you both. James and Julian, thank you so much for your time. Thank Thank you. you.